Thank you so much for joining us this week at Zion City Church. We believe that God still speaks through His Word and His people. So right now, lean in and listen to the Holy Spirit. We hope that this message encourages you, inspires you, and brings you into a deeper love and worship of Jesus. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of Zion City Church. I'm not even sure I need to preach after that time of worship. Like, pretty sure the Lord did his work. We're good. Good to go. Um, so we're just going to close the time of prayer and um, figure out how to open my technology. Um, I am young, and yet technology has already surpassed me. And so I don't know what to do about that, um, knowing that I have the rest of my life prayerfully ahead of me. Um, About 2017, I remember calling your pastor, and uh, at the time, uh, Zion City was a, a vision in his mind, but it wasn't, I don't think, at the time, a reality. And he was sharing with me his heart to plant a church in Las Lunas that would promote the beauty of Jesus in this city that would promote the presence of God coming in and shaping and transforming not just Las Lunas, but Valencia County. Um, and so what I want to just do real quickly is just have you all look around for a moment at the fact that was once just a picture in, in somebody's mind the Lord has brought about to be reality. Um, you have been in my prayers since that conversation. And I am so excited to see how God is going to use you all. I'm already praying that that dirt lot over there becomes yours. Um, because we need the hands of good resources in the hands of faithful churches. And that is what the Lord is doing here at Zion City. And so I'm super encouraged by you. I'm encouraged by your pastor, and I'm going to speak to him for a moment. Um, your faithfulness to continue sowing the ground here <laughs> when there were other options, when there were other things you could have been doing, when there are other ways that you could have spent your time uh, is a picture of the way that God loves his people and the way that God loves the city. And so Andrew, Celeste, and Jake and Ashley, I'm going to throw you in here too. Like your faithfulness in the long haul here I believe that the Lord is going to use to bear much fruit. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Andrew has been a, a faithful friend to me over the years. We have known each other since high school, uh, but we went off in different directions, and yet at the same time, the Lord somehow knit our stories together where we both found ourselves youth pastoring at the same time and at the same conferences and connecting through that. And then as the Lord was moving his heart into pastoring and planting, the Lord was moving my wife and I over to India to be in full-time missions work. And then uh, through that process, the Lord brought my wife and I back to El Paso, where my wife is born and raised, to pastor a church. And the Lord throughout all of that time has just knit Andrew and I together. He is a, and I, I think that this is underestimated in the church today, a faithful minister of the word. 
Like the fact that Sunday after Sunday he comes and opens this book, the very words of God, and explains them to you in a faithful way is just an uncommon thing in our culture today. And so I just want to celebrate that and rejoice that. He is a faithful pastor to you. He is so proud and, and he deeply loves each and every one of you. And I want to encourage you in the pastor that you have, in the way that he loves the Lord, the way that he loves you, and the way that he loves the kingdom. Yeah. Enough about him. Um, <laughs> apologize, I talk with my hands, so if I throw the mic, it's, uh, I'm loud enough. Um, I am a disciple of Jesus, first and foremost. I am desiring to live my life in a way that looks like Christ, and I am failing daily. <laughs> and yet, I desire to look like him and to be conformed into his image. I am, uh, after a disciple to Jesus, first and foremost, a husband to my beautiful wife, Julie, uh, a father to my wonderful, sensitive, hilarious, rage-filled son, um, uh, Emmerich. And then uh, if you're wondering, she's not smuggling cantaloupes under her dress. She is uh, pregnant with a child, so all of you who are like, is she, is she not, you're free now. Uh, pregnant with our, our second baby, um, uh, baby girl. Yeah. 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 I am the father. Uh, and so we're, I'm, I'm out of control already. Um, you guys good to go long today? Uh, I am a covenant member of Jesus Chapel, uh, the church that I have the honor and pleasure of pastoring in El Paso, Texas. Um, I am a young pastor, which means that they get to put up with all of my mistakes, and so they are gracious to me, and they love me well, and they were gracious to, to share uh, with you this morning, and so I'm thankful for them, but I'm also thankful for Valencia County. Um, so I, I spent formative years of my life in Berlin, uh, and I apologize to all you who love Las Lunas. Um, <laughs> But, but played golf for Berlin High School and um, worked in Berlin and loved Valencia County for the years that I was here. And so I, I owe a debt of gratitude to this part of the world. And uh, to all of you who wonder what good come out, comes out of here, a lot of things, a lot of things. This place has a unique um, piece of God's puzzle. And God is... God is doing something special here, and I look forward to what that looks like moving forward. I, I want to, as we get into this sermon this morning, talk a little bit about where I am at. Um, I, I love the series that you all are in. I, I listen to Andrew's sermons every week, and then last week I was shocked because it sounded like John Mark Comer was here. Um, but it was just John Reagan, and uh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I literally had to double take. I was like, wait, who is this? Like, oh, no, it's John. All right, we're good. Um, but I, I love this series that you all are in, that you guys are, are in this series of beholding Jesus, and I love it because it's the thing that I am most convinced of in the world. It is pretty much the only sermon that I've got, and it's this, that we do not change or see gospel renewal in our lives and in our cities by adding more religious activity to our to-do list. 
we change and become transformed to the image of Christ by beholding him. We become what we behold. And I want to build off of that theme today, but not by looking at a specific story of Jesus, but by kind of taking Jesus from 30,000 feet. What is the ministry of Jesus and how does that operate in such a way that would bring gospel renewal to our lives? I am in a season where I feel as if God is not speaking to me. Um, Time in the word and in prayer can feel academic can feel apathetic. I don't know um, uh, about you, but maybe you have a misconception about pastors, like we just float out of bed into the morning to coffee that's been prepared by the angels, and we just sit there with our Bible, and, and it's this glorious encounter with the Lord every morning, and that's just, that's just not the case. And so for me, um, for some time now, being with God has been hard work in my life. It's been effort. And it's been a struggle. And so normally if somebody were to come into my office at my church and they were to tell me this, I'd do a pastoral diagnosis. I'd just ask them, I'd say, all right, well, is there unrepentant sin in your life? And so I'm doing this diagnosis on my, myself. I'm like, well, there's not unrepentant sin. And I'd say, well, am I making time for God? I'm like, yeah, I'm making time for God. I'm waking up in the mornings. I'm desiring to be with him. I'm spending time in the word and in time in prayer, spending time with the people of God. And then I would ask, okay, if you're doing those two things, is there unforgiveness in your heart towards a brother or sister? And if that's not there, if that also isn't present, then, then what, what do we do with that? with somebody who is still feeling distant from God, and yet they're repenting of sin, they're, they're making the time to be with him, they're posturing themselves for the presence of God, they are, they are walking in unity and reconciliation with brothers and sisters in Christ, what do we do if even then they still feel as if God is not speaking to them? Now, we all in here, we're all frothy charismatics, so we love God speaking. We love it. We we believe that God is still moving today. We believe that God is still present today. We believe that the gifts of the Spirit are active and present in the church. We believe that God still speaks to us individually today, and yet, what do we do in those moments when it feels like he's not, when it feels like he's silent, when it feels like we're cut off? And so maybe this is you today. Maybe, maybe it's not. Don't worry, you'll be there someday. Uh, if this is not you today, you will one day have a day where you wonder where God is. And you're pushing for God's presence, and it just seems like he is silent. What do we do in moments when we no longer seem to be hearing from God? What do we do when we've been posturing ourselves to receive his presence, when we're when we're walking in confession, when we're pursuing unity, what do we do when he's not there? So I'm going to read the text again because I think the answer for us is found in this passage of Scripture. This passage of Scripture where God is so clearly on display. And not only is he clearly on display, but he's clearly speaking. 
Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Help us to see you today. Now, this passage itself finds itself within a context. It finds itself within the book of Hebrews. And here's what we know about Hebrews. Almost nothing. Um, we don't know who wrote it. We don't know who it was written to. Uh, we, we just don't really know a lot about it. But here's what we know for sure from the book of Hebrews, that it was written to a church that was in the midst of suffering that was in the midst of pain. It was written to a church that was asking the question, where is God? And so they're asking the question, where is God? And what happens when we don't know where God is? We scramble for solutions. So this can look like self-medicating with our age of distraction. It can be phones, it can be social media, it can be Netflix, it can be an endless stream of news sources. There's self-medicating and it works for a time and, and we feel a little better, distract ourselves from what we're feeling, but maybe even stay busy enough to forget. But inevitably those other voices will always leave us wanting more. And so maybe there's other people in the church, they haven't gone to self-medicating with the things of their age. Instead, they've gone to uh, this feeling of distance from God, and so they just think, well, if I could just get a word from him, just a special word or a revelation from above, then I'll be okay, then I'll know I'm secure, then I'll know my salvation is good. If the Lord could just speak to me in some way, shape, or form, then I will know and have confidence and I will understand this is what's happening in this church. They are, they are seeking to self-medicate with other voices or seeking to find an answer to the distance that they were feeling in experiences. And the author writes to this church. He writes to this church that is suffering, helping them to better understand their situation and their suffering. And essentially the message to the uh, to the Hebrews is this, it, well, not to the Hebrews, the message of the book of Hebrews is this, that Jesus is God's message to you. That Jesus is better than any other possible word. That Jesus is the sure and steady anchor for your soul. Now, I, I want us to think about that concept of Jesus being an anchor. Um, what is an anchor used for on a ship? It is used because the assumption is that the ship will drift away from its desired location. And so the anchor is used to hold the ship fast as the waves come and would take it along and drift it away from its location. 
the author of Hebrews assumes that our souls are nothing more than ships being tossed by the sea. And we desperately need something to hold us fast. There is an assumption that you and I will naturally drift away from God. There is an assumption that that is the natural state of humanity, <laughs> to drift. And so what do we need? What do we need in those moments where the waves of the world seem to be more encompassing than the God of the universe? What do we do in those moments when we seem to feel like just slowly over time we've drifted away and we don't know how we ended up where we are? We need an anchor. We need an anchor for those moments where God does not seem to be speaking to us. We need an anchor. So the emphasis of the book is that Jesus is your sure and steady anchor. Hold fast to him, and he holds fast to you. And so what the author does in the very beginning is he reintroduces us to Jesus. The very first three verses of the book are putting on display who Jesus is and what he is doing for you and for I and for me. And so verses 1 and 2, he, he talks about how God has spoken in the past. He says, God used to speak through the prophets, various ways of speaking through those prophets. And it was this unclear sort of picture. But now, now he has spoken through his son. Who is his son? Well, the author tells us. He assumes we'll ask that question. And so he tells us that the Son of God, who we know to be Jesus, is the one who is appointed as the heir of all things. And also the one whom God used and who through God created the universe. Now, this is, this is helpful for us. We... Um, you guys are a smart church, so I'm going to throw a couple terms at you today, and that's going to be helpful, and we're going to be okay, and Andrew will preach on it later, so um, just never mind. Uh, I, back to my notes. So the Trinity is, is what we as Christians, found, we, we foundationally believe in a God that is a Trinity, Trinitarian God. He is Father, He is Son, and He is Holy Spirit. God the Father creates through God the Son. So God the Father creates through God the Son. Everything in the world has been created by God, through God, and for God. So God speaks through the Son who is the end point of all things. So all of creation not only is created by God, but finds its culmination in God. So when this text says that Jesus is the heir of all things, that means that all things find their purpose and their end in Christ. Let me see if I can make this plain. In Jesus, we see the reason for everything. Not just why things were created, but the way in which God is redeeming and reconciling all things to himself. 
we understand rightly and we understand the world rightly when we put the lenses of Jesus on. Is that the pastor's son? Uh, I love it. <laughs> it's my kid too, so we're good. This is a fundamental framework for us. Like a fundamental framework for us as believers is to understand that all things find their, their purpose in Christ. We understand the world rightly only through the lenses of Jesus. In this idea of Christ being the heir of all things, here's what we're seeing. No matter how pointless you think your life is, it isn't. Your life culminates in being part of Christ's inheritance. Your life has meaning and value and purpose because it's caught up in God's story. You carry Christ as someone who is part of his eternal inheritance. It was literally through him and for him that you were created. And it is for him that you are created and that you exist now. Your entire life is valuable because it finds itself within the context of God's story and of Christ. And some of you just need to hear that your life's valuable today. Some of you just need to know that and believe that because everything out there would say that you're not enough. But this text is telling us that your life is a part of Christ's inheritance, is the heir of all things. Which means that Jesus is looking forward to getting you as a gift. <laughs> Isn't that wild? He then moves on. He, he begins to not just talk about who Jesus is, but he talks about his work. The work of Jesus is found in verse 3 where we see that it says that he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. So Jesus, God the Son, has been imaging God perfectly for eternity. For eternity. When we see Jesus, we see most clearly God's glory on display and his image as it was intended to be seen. Here's what this means. The, the fullness of God's plan for the world and creation is found in the mystery of the incarnation. When Jesus takes on flesh, God's wisdom and knowledge is fully revealed. So when we look to Jesus, we see the exact representation of God's character, his righteousness, his love, his power, his justice, his wisdom, every blessing ever promised, whatever God has promised to mankind, whatever God has, whatever God is, it's all found in Jesus Christ. And when we look to Christ, as we see him in scripture and we hear him preached, we can know what God is like. And we can begin to understand who he is. We can begin to understand his heart for us. We can see Jesus and see God. 
author goes on to tell us that it is by Jesus' powerful word that all things are sustained. So when we see Jesus, we see the way in which God is sustaining the world. Without the word of God made most clear to us in Christ, the entire world would crumble and fall apart. See this in, in the book of Acts where Paul preaches a message and he, he begins his sermon by, by stating these words. They, they were to believed to be a truth that many of the Greek philosophers believed about an invisible God that they did not know. And Paul says, that invisible God that you don't know, that's Jesus. And it's in him that we live and we move and we have our being. In the words of St. Augustine, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. It is his breath in our lungs. And without him sustaining the universe by his powerful word, world, uh, word we would crumble into pieces. So the Son is the Lord of all creation, and then he moves, he shifts his thinking from what the Son has been doing since creation to what Jesus has now done very practically for you and for me. He says this phrase, he says, after he had provided for the purification of sins. Uh, that's an amazing statement. Andrew's taught you all about what sin is, and so I'm not going to recap, but what I'm going to do is talk through this for just a moment. God speaks. What we're dealing with in this passage is how God has spoken, and a way that God has spoken is in Jesus through the way that he purifies and provides for the purification of sins. So let's make that real and practical for all of us. We're all in process. Every single one of us is somewhere on the journey from um, no, nothing like Christ to looking like Christ. Every single one of us is on that journey and on that pathway. All of us are in process, and so God speaks to that process in the work of Jesus on the cross who takes on the sins of the world in the cross. Jesus is doing the work of making those of us who are dead alive in the cross. Jesus is making it possible for God to forgive us of our trespasses in the cross. Jesus is canceling the record of debt that stands against us in the cross. He is setting aside your sin by nailing it to the cross. And in doing so, he is disarming the enemy and putting him to open shame robbing sin and death and the enemy of their power by canceling the record of debt in the cross of Christ. Christ is victorious through his work of purification and death for your sins. Here's what this means. You are in process and I am in process but notice the way that this sentence structure works. Having made purification. What's the verb tense there? It's past. It's past tense. <laughs> Which means this is already true of you. 
which means this is already true of you. In your process, you can take confidence in the fact that God is speaking to those sins in Christ's purification of them. Are you struggling with besetting sins? Look to Jesus. Now I love this. It doesn't stop here. Man, this is good. This text wrecking me. <laughs> the text tells us that after making purification for sins, he sat down. Now for us, we're, we're a pretty um, sedentary culture. We're always sitting down. Like, um, so that means not much to us. We're like, okay, good for you, Jesus. You finally got the memo. Like, no, that's not what this text is telling us. When this text says that he sat down, we have to put ourselves in the understanding of the original readers who, in ancient Jewish culture, would look to the idea of sitting down to imply that the work was finished. So, so here's what this means. When Jesus sits down, his work is done. His work is done. Purifications for your sin is finished. Colossians chapter 3 tells us that <laughs> seek, the things of, uh, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And that finds itself in the context of talking about how you and I, our state as believers in Jesus is united to Christ. So when Jesus sits down at the right hand of the Father, you know what that's saying? You and I are sitting there with him. Purified, sitting with Jesus, understanding and knowing that his work is finished. Your sanctification is secure. You are stepping into this process that we are all in with a knowledge that God has already prepared the ground and finished the work, right? We all love like that verse in Joshua where it's be strong and courageous, but we all miss the fact that God says, I've already prepared the promised land for you. Be strong and courageous because I'm already there. So you and I, in this process that we are entering into, we can be strong and we can be courageous and we can take on our sin because we know that Jesus has already done the work of purifying us from those things and he has already sat down at the right hand of the Father implying that this work that you and I are stepping into, finished. Finished. In Jesus, God's most prominent word pronounced over your life is found that you have been purified that you have been sanctified that you have been justified that he has spoken to you that he sustains you that he upholds you that he is a steady anchor for your soul because of what he has done in the cross so what i don't want to do is leave you with that and try to make you figure out how to apply it and so i want to look at jesus and see how he speaks to very spe specific scenarios that we might find ourselves in. So maybe this morning you've come in here and you're just doubting. 
you heard these words and you think that they sound nice and you've, you've been trying to connect to Christianity for some time now and you're just not sure. Matthew 28, we see this beautiful story. Jesus has died and he has risen from the dead. Like, think, I want you to think about that for a moment. Imagine if uh, on Friday, Andrew died and you all attended his funeral on Saturday and then on Sunday, he was just in the building walking around. That's what's happening in the life of the disciples. They have just witnessed Jesus' death, and now they are seeing him face to face. And the text tells us that they worshipped, and then immediately after it says, but some doubted. And what we don't see in that text is Jesus hightail it in the opposite direction, say, I gotta go find some other people to take the mission of God. No, it says, it says, and they worshiped, but some doubted, and Jesus moved towards them. If this is you today, where you have come in here wondering what to believe, all you've seen from Christianity has left you wanting, you've been through all the motions, you've said all the prayers, and yet you have not felt the presence of God. You've been walking in unknown, not seeing Jesus. You've got questions, and there is no amount of answers that I could give you today that would satiate those needs. There's none. Like, I could not give you the perfect logical answer. But you do need to know that Jesus does not move away from your doubt. He moves towards it. Instead of moving away, he moves towards it. He is not running in the opposite direction of you, friend. He's inviting you into his story. And the most amazing thing about this story in Matthew 28 is they worship, some doubted, Jesus moves towards them. And then this is where we see the great commission given. Jesus entrusts the kingdom to those who are still not fully sure about him. God is not waiting for you to figure out all the answers to invite you into what he's doing in the world. And he's also not moving away from you, just waiting for you to figure it out and get it together. He's moving towards you. He's speaking directly to you, and he's inviting you in even if you don't have all the answers. Maybe you're in here this morning, and... and you're saying that you don't doubt, but you just wonder if you could ever actually be forgiven because of the way that you constantly struggle with sin. Andrew preached on this a few weeks ago, but in John 8, there's a story where Jesus stands in on behalf of a woman who is caught in the middle of her sin. And Jesus steps in as many are ready and prepared to stone this woman. What I love about this story is it's clear that these individuals prepared for this scenario. And it's clear in the story that they knew that Jesus would respond in the way that he did. They are expecting Jesus to forgive this woman. And they're trying to pit him in a scenario where he would be in the wrong. And so Jesus, what he does is he, he steps in on behalf of this woman and all those who are ready to condemn her turn and walk away. And then you have Jesus, the only person who could condemn this woman, 
turn to her and look to her. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So he delivers her. The one with the right to condemn her walks in no condemnation for her. He looks at her and he loves her. And then he invites her into a life of freedom. And if this is you today, where your sin has resulted in condemnation being heaped upon you, and you are sitting under the sound of my voice wondering if you could ever be forgiven. Jesus looks at you, and he loves you, and he says there is no condemnation for you. You don't have to live in that any longer. You have been offered a way out by the God who stands in between you in condemnation. Look to Jesus and see freedom. Look to Jesus and see the beauty of grace. See a God who is not throwing stones at you, but is instead stepping in front of death to give you your dignity, your value, and your worth back. He is not done with you, friend. He is not done with you. Maybe you're in here this morning and you're saying, man, Austin, I'm not doubting and I am... I'm not in habitual sin. I'm not in this place of feeling condemnation, but I will tell you what, I am suffering. How does Jesus speak to that? In John 11, we see a story where Lazarus, Jesus' friend, has died. And when his sister Mary comes before Jesus, her response is, Lord, if you had been here, then he would not have died. Now, in the evangelical church today, we really struggle with that statement. We would, you know, feel like we needed to correct that person's theology. We'd feel like we need to fix, you know, like, hey, you know what, you just, it's a broken world, it's a sin, and we would try and fix the situation and make sure that the sufferer understood that their theology was wrong, which is just dumb. And so, Jesus does not respond by correcting her theology. He's not jumping into defense and saying, well, you know, it just took me a long time to get here. He's not jumping into defense saying, well, it's a broken world and death happens. That's not what he does. Jesus does not respond by correcting her. Instead, the text says that he is deeply moved. In other texts, we are informed that not only was he moved, but he was moved to weeping. You see, if Jesus is God revealed to us, then how he responds in the face of suffering and death is exactly how God responds. And God moves near to his people when they suffer. And while suffering is often the place where we find it the hardest to see God's goodness, it's also the place where God's goodness is most clearly revealed. Because it's in Jesus' suffering that God makes a way for us to have hope forevermore. You see, Jesus is the answer to the question, is God good in suffering? God doesn't answer our questions of suffering by giving us a philosophical answer. He just doesn't. (laughs) He's not interested in it. Instead, he answers the questions of suffering by getting his hands dirty. By entering the world as the suffering servant, the man of sorrows, well acquainted with our grief, so that we can have a high priest who pays the price for sin, which is the ultimate cosmic cause of evil and suffering in the world. And if you are in here this morning and you are in a season of suffering, God speaks to you by his son. 
who subjected himself to death on the cross so that you might have a savior who can sympathize with your weaknesses so that you can know even in this while the body is dying while you are feeling the weight of a broken world death is not defeat for those of us who die with him will also be raised with him and this light and momentary affliction is producing for us a weight of glory far beyond what we can comprehend. You see, when we look to the cross, we see a moment where we can't believe that God could be good in that, and yet, Jesus' work in the cross and his suffering and his death, and in his death, in his death, he's making a way for you and I. Suffering is not the end of the story. It's not. It's the way that God uses to bring about his glory for us. Maybe you're in here this morning and, and, and you're suffering at the hands of others. You find yourself in a position of being lowly and oppressed, and we look to the story of Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is a no-name woman from a no-name town in the Roman Empire. Her status would have been very low. She would have been subject to the ruling forces of the day, and upon finding out that she is pregnant with the salvation of the Lord, she responds with a song, and in her song, she says, God has looked upon my humble estate. God sees her, he sets his loving care on her, and the foundational value statement of her life becomes the foundational value statement of every Christian, that God has done great things for me. And her song goes on to speak of the great reversal of God's kingdom, a kingdom where the lowly will be exalted, the proud will be torn down, the oppressors will no longer have power. This is the promise of Christ's kingdom. It's the great reversal that the lowly, the oppressed, they will be exalted and the mighty will be toppled down. And as Jesus is led to the cross and condemned to death, we wonder if this great reversal will ever happen. But in the cross is the death of death. The tyrant death took what never belonged to it in the life of Jesus. And in doing so, death stood condemned. And Jesus rises again victorious. The great reversal has come. So to all who are lowly and oppressed, God speaks to you in his son Jesus, our gentle and lowly king who was abused, betrayed, accused of wrong, and yet was void of sin and wrongfully murdered. God promises that in the full realization of his kingdom, he will make all these wrongs right. He stands in solidarity with you. He sets his loving care on you. The God of the universe is for you. And he is against your oppressor. I, maybe this doesn't land, but I'm just going to go for it. Um, this applies to abusive marriages. Where those of you who are finding yourself under a spouse who is walking in abuse and oppression 
and using their position of power to keep you in bondage. God is vehemently opposed to that person. And God is for you. And I'll speak for Andrew and Celeste and Jake and Ashley and this church knowing that they want to help you. Because the great reversal doesn't just have future promises, it has promises now. And so if that's the situation you find yourself in, I encourage you to talk to, to your pastors and your leaders here. Sorry to throw you in there, but... You see, for all of us in here who maybe find ourselves in a moment where we don't know how God is speaking to us, we only need to look to Jesus to see the way that he speaks very specifically to our different circumstances, the way that he speaks very specifically to us, because that is God's clearest and most profound word for your life today. And it is by beholding him that we start to see and understand who God is for us. He speaks to us even when we aren't hearing him. All we need is to look to Jesus, to see Jesus and see a clear and present word on display for us. Let's pray. Lord, I think of the words of one of the great historic summations of the faith in the Nicene Creed where it talks about who Jesus is. He is true God from true God, light from light, very God of very God. God, we want to see you, we want to hear you, we want to know you, and we thank you that you have spoken clearly to us in Jesus. I pray that you would help us this morning to see you, to look to you, to know you. Lord, for all those in here who maybe are in a season where they are, are not seeing you, they're not hearing you, would you speak to them this morning? Whether that is through seeing you in scripture or whether that is through hearing you now lord we pray that they would find a steady anchor for their souls lord for all those in here who are in a season where they just are are abounding in the presence of god i just rejoice in that with them Lord, I pray that you would bring back these words that God speaks through Jesus when they inevitably find themselves in a time where they don't know where you are. Lord, help us. For those of us in here who are wondering, where is God? Help us. Anchor us, Lord. Lord, so many of us are struggling with, with anchoring our lives in experiences or with um, 
ease of life, Lord, and we just desire that we would not be anchored by sinking sand, but on Christ alone, the cornerstone, may our hope be found. On Christ, the solid rock, may we stand. Help us, Lord. We rejoice in you this morning. It's in your name we pray. To see all the new content coming from Zion City, follow us on Instagram or like us on Facebook. And to partner with us financially, visit our website at zioncitychurch.net.